Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Mark, and today we're going to take a look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 26. You can find this on page 847 in the blue pew Bibles and 1007 in the red pew Bibles. As you're turning there, I want to remind you of a few things. We've got our family meal after worship today, so we want to make sure that you stick around for that, that you uh, join us. Even if you didn't bring anything, we still would love to have you, love to get to know you better. We have yet to run out of food, and when we do, that'll just help us to bring more. So there you go. Um, We also want to invite kids ages five years old to fifth grade. Out the back door, we have what we call Caruso Kid Zone. This is an opportunity for kids to study the Word, They're going through a program right now, which is learning about the scripture from beginning to end, creation, fall, redemption, recreation, how the whole story of scripture tells God's story. And so parents, I would encourage you to ask them about what it is that they learned as they were in Crusoe Kids Zone. I want to remind you, too, that we have these invitation cards that are made for you to hand out to people. Uh, This is an opportunity for you to share about our church, to share about our worship service. Uh, This is something that is an easy conversation starter. You can either use it just to invite people to church and walk away, or you can use it to start a conversation about what church is and how you would love for them to join us. And finally, I would appreciate your prayers for our leaders. Uh, Tonight is the first training for our leaders, both our current leaders and those who you nominated. So just pray for them as they go through this season, that they would be able to sustain, uh, that they would be able to learn more about who the Lord is and what their responsibilities are as leaders, and that the Lord would bless them in this process. Now that you have turned to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 26, please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 26. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. 
And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then he came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning. They saw again the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remarked and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus said to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Father, we thank you for this section of text, this triumphant entry where we see Jesus entering as he nears the end of his life. We pray that you would help us to understand everything that's going on in this text, not just in our heads, but hide the truths of the gospel in our hearts and help us to work out with our hands that which we learn. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, keeping in mind that Jesus is king, whenever we read, we say context is. That's right, because as we read, we need to understand the context so that we can fully grasp what it is that the Lord is trying to teach us. So we have been studying the book of Mark. Mark is the shortest synoptic gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have similar stories, and so they're called the synoptics, and Mark is the shortest one of those. And this book was written by John Mark from Peter's Witness. Excuse me. That means that Peter uh, told John what was John Mark what was going on, and he wrote it down. And the book of Mark is written more to a Gentile audience, people who don't have the the big history of the Jews. The book of Matthew is filled with historical references to the Old Testament and things that Jews would know, whereas Mark is written more towards a Roman soldier, somebody who doesn't have that background but can still understand the glory of Christ. Some of the key themes that we see throughout the book of Mark are the sonship of Christ. We've already seen at least twice where God has come down and said, this is my son. Jesus is the son of God. We've seen the authority of Christ. We've seen how he goes out and teaches, but he also heals people, casts out demons, and has control over nature, all of which were not the main reason he comes, but instead are authority They're showing that he has the power to back up his words. And the things that he says are the gospel, the truth of the gospel of Jesus. So Mark throughout has shown us the sonship of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, and the gospel of Jesus. And as we've been going through the book, we've been using the imagery of kintsugi pottery, which is a Japanese art form where 
bowls or plates that are broken are repaired, but instead of trying to repair them where they look just like they used to look, they are repaired in such a way that they accent the breaks. And what we've been doing is we've been using this kind of as a visual representation of what Jesus does in our lives. We are broken people. Every time we sin, it provides another crack. Every time we break God's law and run from Him, it it shatters us a little more. And on our own volition, we're like a shattered plate that can't fix itself. But through trusting in Jesus and what He has done, He repairs us. He makes us whole. Not erasing the things that have happened, but using those so that we can then do what we were commanded to do. Discipling others, glorifying the Lord, and enjoying Him forever. Each one of us that trusts in the Lord has been repaired from our brokenness through trusting in Christ. As I said already this week, I was doing some study on Christian history, and I came across a quote by Duncan Campbell, who was a pastor in the early 20th century. And he would tell his congregation, holiness is more desirable than happiness. Holiness is more desirable than happiness. Now when I say that, What is your heart's reaction to that quote? Holiness is more desirable than happiness. What is your head's reaction to that quote? So what do you feel when you say that? What is your heart's reaction? And what do you think when you hear that? What is your head's reaction to that quote? Does that quote encourage you? Or does that quote frustrate and anger you? Likely you have a battle going on in your heart and brain. Your heart is like, oh, whoa, 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 no, I want to be happy. And your brain's like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense because, you know, pursuing God and holiness, and so they're fighting each other. But this man used to say all the time to his congregation, holiness is more desirable than happiness. Now, to clarify, I don't think holiness and happiness are mutually exclusive. I don't think that by following God's holiness, you are giving up all happiness. I think you can be content as you pursue holiness. However, what the quote is supposed to be pointing out is that for many, happiness is the goal of life. Happiness, this this shallow feeling of goodness, of completeness found in things of this world is the goal of life. For many, happiness is not defined as glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Instead, happiness is the pursuit of the empty, vain things that are passing away in this world. More money, more travel, more emotions more feelings. For many, happiness is defined in that way, and because of that, it is exclusive from holiness. Because when we're pursuing our own selfish desires that don't glorify God, we can't be pursuing the Lord at the same time. And this is why Pastor Campbell said, holiness is more desirable than happiness. Now, Christ tells his disciples throughout his ministry that they are called to be faithful rather than famous. 
They're called to be faithful rather than famous. They're supposed to pursue holiness rather than the world's happiness. And we are going to see some explicit examples of that in today's text. So today, as we continue looking at Mark, we're going to look at three things. The fanfare, the fruitless, and the faithful. That was a great Presbyterian three-point, all starting with the same letter. So all of you should remember that and should ask each other when you walk out, what were the three things we talked about? The fanfare, the fruitless, and the faithful. Let's start by looking at verses 1 through 11 and the fanfare. Now, we've already read this account in two different Gospels. Gospel of Mark as a way to bring us together, to call us into worship, remembering that Jesus was the Savior. And then we read it in the Gospel of Matthew, remembering our assurance that Jesus did come in to Jerusalem triumphantly, but ended up dying for us to forgive us of our sins. In verses 1 through 11, we see Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. But to fully understand this entry, we really need to look back at Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 is a prophecy about Jesus. It's a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled here in this section of text by riding into Jerusalem on a colt. But it's also a prophecy that is misread. You see, the people were misreading it as a political prophecy, and that's why they were looking at Jesus as their military political messiah. But what it says is that Jesus is going to take care of all of our spiritual needs. And this is a little confusing, this section of text, this first 11 verses of chapter 11, because all throughout Mark, we've seen Jesus say, I'm not that guy, I'm not the political guy, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again from the grave, I'm someone different. And he tries not to encourage this idea that he is somehow the Savior. In fact, multiple times when he heals, he says, don't tell anyone. He doesn't want people telling anyone because he doesn't want to get the reputation as this mighty political conquering hero. And yet he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. This seems so confusing because coming in on a donkey runs the risk of perpetuating the political Messiah, which it actually does. The reason this happens is because normally pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for the Passover would walk the last stretch into Jerusalem. And so Jesus stood out remarkably by coming in on a donkey. Not only that, but Jesus coming in on a donkey represents that he has some kind of authority or power or he's someone significant. But he comes in on a donkey not because he's the political savior, but in order to fulfill Zechariah 9 9 and 10. Now it's interesting too that 
when we rewind back to the life of David, in 2 Samuel chapters 15 and 16, we see David fleeing the city after his son Absalom forces him out. David flees the city, likely on a donkey, through the Mount of Olives. And now Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives on a donkey back into the city. There's a connection between David and the descendant of David, that Jesus is, who is going to be the Messiah. Now you may ask, okay, so what's going on here? We see the waving of branches, we see the laying down of cloaks. Is that just because they valued donkeys and didn't want them dirty or what? Well, the waving of branches was a tradition that was used to greet one another and as a way to point to the worship of God. But the laying down of cloaks on the road was a way to honor the one who is riding on the donkey. And so they see Jesus. Normally people walk up into Jerusalem, but Jesus is coming in on a donkey. And so this has to be someone important. Now, some of them recognize him. We know that because they say uh, this is Jesus, excuse me, the coming kingdom of the father David. And so they lay their cloaks on the road as a way of honoring Jesus. Again, Jesus throughout all of Mark has said, I'm not the political savior, and yet this seems like he's kind of taking that role on. But the purpose is not to be the political savior, but to be the savior that they actually need. And interestingly, the words that they say matter too. Hosanna, the word Hosanna means save or please save. So they're saying, save us, please save us. They think Jesus is this political Messiah. They think Jesus is the one who is going to save them. And then when they go on and say, blessed is he, that's a quote from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And Psalm 118 is a prayer of blessing for the coming messianic kingdom. And so they combine this, save us, please, this request, this demand of Jesus to save them with a quote from Psalm 118 that says, bring the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom of God. Not only that, but they are entering into Jerusalem for the Passover. What did the Passover celebrate? Liberation and the exit from Egypt, where they had been in bondage and slavery for 400 years. So they're celebrating God's redemption of them, God's pulling out of them from the slavery of Egypt. They're walking up to Jerusalem and they see Jesus, this one who has this reputation, and they assume that he's the one that's going to liberate them from Rome. So of course, they're excited. And on the one hand, they're right. Jesus is the Messiah that will save them. But the Messiah that they're looking for is a Messiah of political, temporary saving. And the Messiah that Jesus actually is, is a Messiah of spiritual, eternal saving. Christ isn't looking to encourage a military uprising. That's not why he comes in on the donkey. He comes in on the donkey to fulfill the prophecies about him. And the people get it partially right. They recognize him as the Messiah. They just don't understand the way that he is going to be their Messiah. So Christ comes into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple, and he's looking in the temple for the true worship of God. And as we're going to see here in just a second, the fact that he does not find that true worship sets us up 
for his cleansing sets us up for the expectation of judgment on that temple. So now that we've looked at the fanfare and how Jesus entered Jerusalem in verses 1 through 11, let's look at the fruitless. Now the fruitless in verses 12 through 21 is this section of three different short stories. We hear a story about a fig tree, we hear the story about the cleansing of the temple, and then we see the culmination of the story about the fig tree. And the fact that the fig tree is on both ends of this tells us that the fig tree relates to the temple. So let's start by looking at verses 12 through 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said, May no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. Now, initially, the first time you read this story, it seems wrong. It seems off. Like, geez, Jesus, calm down, man. Find another tree. But he curses it. It seems like Jesus makes a mistake. But the reality is, as we read in context, this is a prophetic act of Christ. And many times prophets would do this. They use something physical or tangible to represent the message that they are bringing. Christ was hungry, so he goes to the tree. He finds no fruit, so he curses it. But look at verse 13. What does the end of verse 13 say? He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Okay, hang on. Jesus would know this. Everyone would know this. This isn't the right season for figs. There shouldn't be any figs on this tree. Now, far be it for me to question Jesus, because the first time I saw it, read this, I was like, whoa, that's a little bit much. But the more that we study this, the more that we see what it means that this is a prophetic act of Christ, the more we see how Jesus is setting his disciples up to understand what he's about to do in the temple. When you study and understand the context of what a fig tree is, then this makes a little bit more sense. Because when we read it initially, we're like, well, of course there's no ripe figs on it. It's not the right season. Jesus, you shouldn't curse the tree because you shouldn't have expected figs to begin with. And yet, when we go back in the Old Testament and we look at what fig trees were used to represent, we get a better idea of what Jesus is doing. In the Old Testament, the fig tree would sometimes represent Israel and Israel's moral standing before God. If we turn back to Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13 says this, When I gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. In Jeremiah, we're seeing this prophecy of how Israel is not doing what it's supposed to. Instead of being fruitful, like they are called to be, what is the command that God gives Adam, be fruitful and multiply? He's speaking not only of children, but also fruitful of the Spirit, as we're going to see later, particularly in Paul. But these people, this nation, was not being fruitful. Instead, there were no figs on that fig tree, and their leaves were withered. But that's not the only place. There's multiple other places, including Micah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. 
The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Micah 7, 1 and 2. It says they have become like trees which should have fruit on them, but do not. And so this image of a fig tree in the Old Testament is used to represent Israel and its moral standing before God, not being what it should be. So in this context, and the fact that we're going to see fig tree, temple, fig tree, the fig tree is a representation of what is going on in the temple. The temple should be producing fruit. The temple should be producing worship. The temple should be a place where God is being glorified. But we're going to see it's not. And so Jesus' judgment on the fig tree is both signaling and foreshadowing what he's going to do not only in the temple, but how God is going to judge the temple and Israel's fruitless worship at the temple. What happened to that fig tree is going to happen to the temple. And we have the privilege, being far in the future, of looking back and seeing that fulfillment come true. In A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed. And that was the second temple that was built. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples' hearts. The fig, isn't, fig tree is an object lesson that points us to the fact that we are supposed to see the fruit of worship, prayer, and godliness at the temple. So Jesus is on his way to the temple. He's already visited once, so he kind of has an idea of what's going on. And as he's on his way, he gives this physical manifestation of what he's about to do in the temple so his disciples can fully grasp what's getting ready to happen. Cursing this fruitless fig tree because he's about to find a fruitless temple. In verses 15 through 19, we see Jesus and his disciples transition into the, temp into the temple. So the cursing of the fig tree anticipates the cleansing of the temple and the eventual judgment of that temple. Christ is going to remove the defilement. He's going to remove the self-interested commerce. Now you may be asking, what, what's going on here in the temple? There was a lot of commercial activity. And it happened not just on the temple precincts, but also on the Mount of Olives. There were money changers that converted money. So as Jews come from around the world in different cultures and contexts, there would be people that would be able to convert the money so that the people could pay their uh, annual temple tax in shekels, which is what they're supposed to pay in. And not just that, but there were commercial people there that were selling animals, animals that were needed for offerings and for sacrifices of thanksgiving. The problem that we have here is not the fact that that is going on. The problem that we have is the fact that that is going on in the temple. And not only is it going on in the temple, but it is disrupting the prayer and worship in the temple. Isaac, go ahead and put up the map, please. In Jerusalem, in the temple, you have this big temple complex. And right in the middle, you've got, that's the temple itself, and then you've got some inner courts where sacrifices are made and other courts. And then you have this low wall that goes all the way around the temple. Now, Jews were not allowed 
inside that low wall. Instead, this whole area here is the Jewish court. So if a Jew wanted to go and pray, I'm sorry, a Gentile wanted to go and pray to the Lord, they could not go inside this low wall. Instead, they had to go in this area. These Gentile courts is what they were called. And that is where the commerce was set up. So you imagine you're a Gentile now. You want to go pray to the Lord. There is no way that you can pray to the Lord. Because instead of being a place of prayer, a house of prayer, as Jesus says, the temple is supposed to be, it has instead become a den of robbers filled with commerce, disrupting the worship and prayer of the Lord. All that commercial activity was turning this house of worship into a den of robbers. Now, you have to imagine, as you look, if that whole space, that big empty space that's for Gentiles is filled with money changers and animals and all kinds of things that are used for the worship of the temple, that has to be distracting. That has to be noisy. That has to be smelly. You're not going to get hundreds of animals around and not have at least one of them poop. And so now this place that's supposed to be holy to the Lord has become chaos. An outdoor market. And the Gentiles can't get away from it because it's happening in the place where they are supposed to come to worship. It's happening in the only place that they were allowed. And Jesus is trying to return the temple to a house of prayer and worship for all the nations. Not just the Jewish nation but for all the nations. And in order for this to be a house of prayer and worship for all the nations, everything that distracts anyone from worshiping and praying has to be driven out. This is why Jesus drives them out. One commentator, Hans Beyer, in speaking of this phrase that Jesus uses, the den of robbers, says this, it's instructive to understand the wider context of Jeremiah 7.11. Jeremiah 7.11 is where that quote of Den of Robbers comes from, to which Jesus alludes here. The prophet Jeremiah is speaking at the gates of the temple in Jeremiah 7.2. During the time of imminent judgment at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. So if you remember when we did the overview of Scripture a few years ago, creation, fall, redemption, recreation, we move through the Old Testament, we get to the period of kings, and in the period of kings, after the two nations split into the northern and the southern kingdom, we have these prophets saying, you're not doing what God called you to do. You're sinning. And if you don't stop, you will be judged. So Jeremiah is doing that. He is crying out to the people. He's saying, you need to stop sinning. And we know from Jeremiah 21 that the Babylonian Empire is going to come in and it's going to wipe them out. Judgment at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. And so this is what Jeremiah is doing in chapter 7. He's speaking to the people as that judgment is imminent. Jeremiah speaks against the men of Judah and against its leaders who worship the Lord in the temple while engaging in idolatry and rampant injustice. So Jeremiah stands at the gates of the temple and he says, judgment is coming because you are worshiping as leaders here at the temple while you're also engaging in idolatry and injustice. 
On account of idolatry, injustice, and immorality, the temple of God's presence had been turned into a den of robbers. Jeremiah 7, 11. Such ungodliness led to the destruction of the first temple in Israel at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, which happens in Jeremiah 7, 12-14, 9-11, and 21-7. It's prophesied and then comes to fruition. Likewise, the second temple will be destroyed for the same reasons. So when the kingdom was split and the first temple was created, there was idolatry rampant. And sin was rampant. Jeremiah stands at the doors and he says, judgment is coming if you don't stop sinning. You are not doing what you're supposed to be doing here in the temple grounds. And they didn't listen. And when they didn't listen, judgment came in the form of Babylon. And the temple was destroyed. Now, Jesus is quoting exactly what Jeremiah said. He said, you have turned this into a den of robbers. That phrase should click on their minds. Oh my goodness, he's talking about Jeremiah 7. Where the, Jeremiah was warning against the actions in the temple and how it would be taken away. Now Jesus is using that same language and warning against the actions in the temple. And they don't listen. We see in verse 18 that things seem to go dark pretty fast. The leaders of the temple, the chief priests and the scribes, heard it and were seeking for a way to make him be quiet. No, that's not what the text says. The chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking for a way to destroy him. For they feared him. Why would they want to destroy Jesus? The chief priests were the ones that were responsible for making sure that the temple was doing what it was supposed to be doing. The chief priests were the ones that were supposed to make sure that the temple was a place filled with worship and prayer. And Jesus is doing their job for them. And instead of saying, oh, right, uh, they shouldn't be there. Yeah, whoops, thanks, Jesus. We appreciate that. They get mad. They want to destroy him. Because they, like the chief priests in the time of Jeremiah, were filled with idolatry, were filled with this love of money, which is what they were getting from the money changers. The chief priests and the scribes were inappropriately endorsing the commerce that was actively defiling the temple. The people who were supposed to protect the worship and prayer were instead endorsing the very thing that was defiling the temple and making it so that worship and prayer could not happen. And Mark shows us the reasons why. All throughout the book of Mark, in his gospel, he has shown us that the motivation of the chief priests and scribes is fear. We see that they fear the loss of their social, economic, and political power. Look back at 18. They were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So they feared the loss of social, economic, and political power. They feared Christ's popularity as a teacher. They felt threatened because they were listening, the crowds were listening to Jesus instead of the chief priests. And especially, they feared a public uprising. Because if the Jews had a public uprising, then Rome would come in and squash it. 
with their legions. And if Rome had to come in and squash this public uprising, they would take all the power that the chief priests and the scribes had been given, which is a tiny amount overall, away. So the chief priests and scribes feared the loss of their social, economic, and political power. They feared Christ's popularity, and they feared that the Romans would take away what little power they had if there was a public uprising. So they don't want to hear what Jesus has to say about the temple being clean. And now we go back to the fig tree in verses 20 and 21. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So on the way into the temple, Jesus curses his fig tree as a physical manifestation of Israel and its moral status before the Lord not doing what it's supposed to do. He goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple and calls them a den of robbers, a hearkening back to Jeremiah right before judgment came upon the temple and it was destroyed. And now we go back to the fig tree and within 24 hours, the tree has completely withered all the way down to its roots. It's not that they walked by and Peter was like, oh, there's a leaf on the ground. See, it listened to you. The tree is withered, clearly not going to be producing fruit Again, remember, what does the tree represent? The tree represents Israel and its moral state before God. God will judge. God will judge those coming to the temple. God will judge those responsible for its care. God will judge when we do things we are not supposed to do. The activity of the temple, its commercialism is fruitless and it's hindering the temple's purpose. So this fig tree is a warning. This cleansing of the temple is a warning that if they don't go back to the Lord, if they don't run back to the Lord, they will be destroyed. And we see the temple destroyed in A.D. 70. All right, so we've looked at the fanfare of Jesus entering Jerusalem. We've seen the fruitlessness of the temple and the fig trees. Let's look at the faithful and Jesus' explanation of what has happened in verses 22 through 25. Now, Christ, when Peter points out that the fig tree is withered, he answers, excuse me, that they are to have continuous faith in God. Peter's like, look, the fig tree is withered. You cursed it. And Jesus says, yep, that's because I took the sun away and all the nutrients and the photosynthesis stopped. And no, that's not what Jesus says. Instead, Jesus says, you are to have continuous faith. Look at verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Now, the reason I'm using this word continuous is because the tenses of the verbs is not to have faith in God one time. It's to have faith in God and continue to have faith in God all through your life. The fig tree is withered. The fig tree representing Israel and its moral standing before God is withered. And what does Jesus say in response? You are called to have continuous faith in God. So what does the cursing of the fig tree have to do with their faith, with their trust? Faith in God, trusting, leads 
to the removal of all that obstructs us from bearing good fruit for God. When we trust in the Lord, the things that keep us from worshiping him will be removed, will be taken out, will be cleared away. And so because the temple was filled with these things that were obstructing, the fig tree was killed and eventually the temple was destroyed. And when Peter points out that this fig tree was cursed, Jesus says, basically, if you don't want to be like that, have continuous faith in God so that your heart is constantly having the money changers and the commercial enterprises cleaned out of it so that you can worship the Lord. And it's interesting, too, because Jesus goes on and talks about this faith, and he uses this illustration of mountains in verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Okay, so this does not mean that we can mountains out of the way. Again, keeping in mind our context, what is Jesus doing? He's showing physical manifestations. He's showing these prophetic acts to help us to understand what is he calling us to. So what does the mountain represent? The removal of the mountain should be taken in a figurative sense of removing anything in our hearts that hinders us from worship. So Jesus is saying, when you truly pray, when you diligently pray, when you ask the Lord in prayer to remove the things that hinder you from worship, he will take them away. Brothers and sisters, part of our daily walk should be praying that the Spirit will help us remove anything that hinders our worship and pursuit of God. That should be what we are doing every single day, praying that the Lord will help remove anything that hinders our worship and pursuit of God. This is what Christ is trying to teach his disciples. Unlike a political savior, Christ is most concerned with our spiritual needs and our worship of the Lord. Then he moves on to verse 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. This is not a blank check. Just put that out there. I believe that I get a Corvette. Nope, that's not how this works. This is not a blank check. This is not something that God is saying, hey, if you trust strong enough and hard enough, you can move mountains and get whatever you want from the world. Again, what is our context? Our context is about removing the things that hinder us from worshiping. And so the Lord says, when we ask for the things that honor God, when we ask for the things that help us worship, when we ask that God helps to remove the barriers and sin that separate us from him, God will do it. When we are seeking his glory, he answers our prayers. When we are seeking to worship him, he answers our prayers. When we are seeking to have all of our sins and temptations removed, he answers our prayers. A key to having our prayers answered is seeking the will of God. If we want him and his glory, he is more than happy to deliver. He is more than happy to give us those things. And Jesus closes this out in verses 25 and 26. 
Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. If we're trying to seek God's honor, and at the same time we're resenting somebody in our hearts because they've wronged us, we are living in contradiction. And so Jesus says, if you're resenting somebody in your heart who has wronged you, go and forgive them so that now when you come to the Lord in prayer, there is nothing as a barrier between you and the Lord. Go and forgive. Forgiveness has to be central to the fruit of our lives as Christians. After all, we have been forgiven. So how do we respond to these stories? How do we respond to the fanfare the fruitful or fruitless and the faithful. How do we play this out in our lives? Well, this section is a story of Jesus visiting the temple, which is supposed to be a place for all the nations, not just the Jews, all the nations to come and worship and pray. And instead, he finds greed, self-centeredness, and commercial gain. And so we have to ask ourselves, when Jesus comes to the temple, and if the temple represents also our heart before the Lord, are we finding it as a place of prayer and worship, or are we finding it as a place that is pursuing the joys of the world, self-centeredness, commercialism, whatever you want to fill in the blank? Where does our heart lie? Does it lie in a desire to worship and pray, or does it lie in a desire for greed, self-centeredness, and gain? How often does your heart pursue happiness over holiness? Again, when I'm speaking of this, I'm speaking of holiness being the pursuit of God, and in this context, happiness being the pursuit of the things of this world. We are called to pursue holiness over happiness. How often do we instead pursue happiness, the things of this world, the, the, the things that were going on in the tabernacle, you know, money, self-centeredness, things like that, over the holiness that Jesus is trying to bring into the temple? Do we pursue holiness first? Or do we pursue happiness? Are we trusting in the Lord? Or are we more concerned with the things of this world? Are we seeking to truly worship the Lord, having a life of spiritual fruitfulness? And when I say that phrase, you should think, oh yeah, Paul talks about that, right? Galatians 5, 22 through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Are we living a life of fruitfulness in step with the Spirit? Or are we living a life of fruitlessness in step with the world? Do you recognize your sin daily? Do you recognize the things that are keeping you from worshiping the Lord? When was the last time that you wept over your sin? Because if you can't answer that question, then I have to ask, do you take your sin seriously? 
Do you understand how your sin separates you from God? Do you understand how your sin is a choice of this world over and above the Lord? Because when you do, and you look at the glory and the joy of the Lord, this should make you weep. Because if you don't think your sin is a big deal, then you don't need Jesus either. Because if your sin's not a big deal, then you can probably you know, just donate to somebody or give a couple hours at the food bank and you're good. Your scales are balanced. But if you look in Scripture and you see your sin as rebellion against the Lord, as running from Him, as breaking relationship with Him, it should make you weep. And when you see your sin and it makes you weep, Jesus and the hope of the gospel will be all the more glorious. Do you daily recognize your sin and need of a Savior? Do you weep because of your sin? And do you pray that the Spirit would help remove anything in your life that opposes or seeks to replace God? In 1922, Helen Lemmel wrote the hymn, The Heavenly Vision, which is more popularly known as Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And she has this phrase, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What's brighter in your eyes? The things of this world or the glory of God? We know what it should be, but sometimes our hearts drive us to the wrong answer. It should be that holiness is more desirable than happiness. Is it for you? Father, this is a convicting text. As we think about the ways that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples and to teach us of how he loves us, it's easy to forget our sinfulness. It's easy to forget that the temple of our hearts, which should be filled with worship and prayer, is often filled with self-centeredness. So, Father, help us, shape us, mold us, so that holiness is more desirable than happiness. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, so that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We thank you, Father, for that glory and grace. And we pray that our lives would be transformed as we pursue you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.